life spiritually. Here's a principle to keep in mind. Here's the first one. Tourist traps aim to take from you, not to give to you. Literal tourist traps, when you pass them on the road, they're, they're wanting something from you. They're, they're not looking to give you something. They want something from you, typically your money, right? And, and when you leave that tourist trap, whether it's the biggest rubber band ball in the whole history of people or it's the largest piece of cherry pie or wherever it is, when you come out of that tourist trap, right, where are you coming out? You're coming out in the gift shop so that you'll buy a magnet of that rubber ball. You'll buy a magnet of that of that uh, piece of cherry pie. They want something from you. They're not giving something to you. That applies spiritually as well. Keep that in mind as we move through uh, the rest of this time and as we start to unpack Scripture. But then there's another principle as it relates to tourist traps, that they pull you away from the primary purpose of the road trip to begin with. Nobody ever gathers the kids, right? There's not a family in Nebraska right now saying, kids, sit down at the kitchen table. We're going to talk about vacation. We're going to leave in two weeks. We're going to start packing tomorrow. It's going to take two weeks to pack. I want you to get all your stuff together. Me and your dad, we're going to be going. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna buy all kind of snacks for you. This is going to be the best vacation we've ever been. We're going to go to south of the border, right? That, that's not a destination. That's, a, that's a, something that pulls you away from the primary path. It's not the destination. That's the way tourist traps work. Nobody ever built their vacation around the biggest this or the smallest that, right? It was always another primary journey they were on. It was the tourist trap through the bright lights, right, through, through, through the alluring invitation that said, leave the main path and come spend some time with us. And in the Christian journey, as we live out our Christian lives, as we seek to walk with God through a relationship with Jesus, there is a primary path. And that path is that God wants us to be conformed into the image of a son, Romans 8, 29. That's his goal for you. He wants to grow you as a believer into the image of Jesus. He wants to mature you. He wants you to grow in Christ so that you're further down that road to maturity uh, uh, this time next month than you were today, right? He wants over time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. He wants to grow you and change you. He wants to use you just like the VBS um, motto is here for this year, the theme, Shine Jesus Light. He wants us to not only grow in him, but he wants us to be on mission with him to share the message of the gospel with people around us. That's what he desires. And in that journey with Jesus, I'm just telling you, there are going to be things that are going to call you and beckon for your attention to distract you and to lure you away from that primary walk. Now, some of them, we're not going to spend a lot of time with this today, but some of those are things of the world, right? It's chasing after money. It's cha chasing after accomplishment. It's cha uh, chasing after um, things that we achieve or acquire, right? Those are all tourist traps that pull you off the main path. We're not going that direction with the message today. We're going to go a different direction as it relates to those things that are less than true that call you off the path of truth in your relationship with God and call you to settle for something different and call you to settle for something less. That's what we're going to focus on today. And again, the parallels are so clear. Some of the things that beckon for your attention, calling you away from a devoted walk with Jesus, are going to be deceptive in nature. Some of them are going to be outright lies. Some of those things are going to be false teaching which ironically 2 John deals with, and it deals with it very forthrightly and in detail, as we're going to see here in just a second. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. First, let's take a look at a few passages of Scripture as it relates 
to walking a walk of truth with God through our relationship with Jesus. Take a look at what Matthew writes here. We're going to put these on the screen here real, real quickly. I'm just going to read through them without much commentary. But one is from the words of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew's writing, he's quoting the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There is a picture there. Jesus is warning people that there is truth to be followed. And yet, at the same time, where there's truth to be followed, Jesus is painting this picture that there are those who outwardly look like, sound like they are promoting truth, but inwardly there is deception, right? There is an ulterior motive, and they're ultimately going to lead you away from truth down a different path. Paul would begin to write, and as he writes his letter to the Roman believers in the very last chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, Look at what he writes in verse 17. He says, now I urge you, brethren, he's talking to Christians, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, not just any dissensions and hindrances, but those that are contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Paul is very clear. He says that there are those that are going to promote a certain type of quote-unquote truth that's contrary to what you've been taught as truth. And, and he tells him very clearly, he says, you turn away from them. And then he goes on to say, even more powerfully in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, to the church in the regions of Galatia, chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. I mean, these are strong, strong words. And what it paints for us is this picture and w when we look at some things about truth, one of the first things that comes out is that truth is already determined. It's discovered, not invented, right? When we think about truth, this is so important to keep in mind. Truth is not something that we are called to invent for ourselves. Truth is something that we are called to discover. It has already been determined. The God of creation, the God of the universe, the God who uh, gave us his word for us to study and to read and to be changed by and to apply to our lives is the God who has already determined truth. It's not up to us to create truth for ourselves. In this culture, you'll often hear, well, what's true for you might not be true for this other person or it may not be true for you or, or for me. You'll often hear the culture, you've got your truth, I've got my truth, as though we're sort of creating our own. That's not the way truth works. That's not the nature of truth. It's already determined. God has already communicated it to us. It's discovered, not invented. Another thing about truth is that truth is objective. Again, in our culture, <laughs> it is not popular to say that truth is objective because our culture holds to a mentality that truth is subjective. You have yours and I have mine, right? Truth is objective. And here's the crazy thing. To disagree with that is a self-defeating argument. And here's why. Because when someone says, no, 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 truth is not objective, it is subjective. You know what that is? That is a statement that is stated as objective truth. <laughs> they believe it to be true in all circumstances, right? It's a self-defeating argument. Truth is objective. God has communicated it to us. I know that's a deep thought. But it's so important to what we're looking at today. The truth is already determined. It's already been communicated to us by God. Truth is a person. What did Jesus say when he described himself in John 14, 6? He said, I am what? The way, the truth, 
and the life. Jesus would describe himself literally as truth. We follow him, we follow truth. We know him, we know truth. God has already communicated it to us through his word, and he's demonstrated it clearly through his son. Truth is also unchanging. It's timeless. Uh, It's cross-cultural. If it's true today, it was true 100 years ago. Uh, That's the nature of truth. It, it it, It doesn't evolve. And again, our culture likes to treat truth as though it's something evolving. There are a lot of hot topic issues right now that are on the table that are, from the culture's perspective, they're political in nature, but really behind that they're spiritual in nature first. Things like right to life, you know, the whole abortion debate that's going on, that's that's a spiritual issue. And there's nothing that has changed over time that has changed the truth that life in the womb is just that. It's life and it's worthy to be protected. That, that doesn't evolve. That doesn't evolve over time to where it changes. It, it ha- we haven't evolved as a culture to a place to where now, because our happiness matters more than it used to 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, we haven't evolved to a place to where it's okay to just bail out on our marriage vows. I mean, we haven't evolved as people to where it's okay to do that because now it's all about me. But back then, not so much. We've evolved to where our culture has changed now. It's okay to bail out on our marriage vows. No, it's not. The truth is the truth. These are vows that God takes very, very seriously and when you look at a lot of the 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 debates raging as it centers around gender for example or sexuality I mean, we haven't evolved as a culture to where things should have changed i mean the truth is what it is god has already defined for us what sexuality looks like he's already defined for us what gender looks like those those are true statements that are in here we we don't evolve as a culture to where we can move those boundaries truth is unchanging truth is cross-cultural truth applies in every single circumstance it's a person it's 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 jesus it it, it is objective right and, and that's what is being dealt with here in the book of second john let me give you another principle and we're going to begin to dig in to second john and what john has to say there and, and the second prin- the third principle is this that the truth just simply does not change with the times that's why the bible is so helpful for us today The only reason it seems outdated to some is because our culture has gravitated so far from it. (laughs) And the reason we have so many of the cultural messes that we have today is because we've gravitated away from God's truth. So let's take a look at what 2 John has to say. Here's a little background to the book of 2 John. It's a very, very short book of Scripture, 13 verses long. It's written by the disciple John. Um, he, uh, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He also wrote Revelation. This is a letter that he has written. I'll explain a little bit as we go, as we move through it. Again, it's a very short one. He wrote it towards the close of the 1st century, around the year 90, maybe 95 or so. So this is the end of the 1st century, 60 years or so removed from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. John, who had been in a, a disciple of Jesus, is now writing And you can see here in this letter, and we're going to read pretty much all of it, that it is a letter of warning to the church, to those who are followers of Jesus. Five times in the first four verses, he's going to use the word truth. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. Second John, we'll call it chapter one. There's only one chapter, but I know you might not be able to sleep well tonight if I don't say chapter one. So second John chapter one, let's go ahead and jump in beginning in verse one. So it says, the elder, that's John referencing himself, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, 
whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Let me pause there for a second because that's a little bit of a different kind of an introduction. So, so John is referring to himself as the elder, and then he says he's writing the letter to the chosen lady and her children. So kind of two schools of thought, neither of which change the way we read this letter. Some will say this is a literal woman in the local church who literally has children. John's writing this letter to her. That would certainly seem to be the face value interpretation of it. Other theologians will say that he uses this terminology, uh, the chosen lady and her children, to refer to that local church specifically and those who are followers of Jesus within it. You, you think about, you know, kind of the reference to Lady Liberty, right? Or you'll refer to a city sometimes as, as you know, as a, with, a, with, a, with a female reference. Uh, some say this is the way John is, is referring to the local church. Either way, right, we don't know definitively. Either way, it doesn't change anything we read about this letter. Paul, or, or rather John, is writing. He's writing to believers. He, he's writing in a way that's applicable to the local church. And he's speaking about truth. Verse 2, he says, For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Right? It's unchanging. Verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children, right, other believers or literal children, walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. So we find something there that begins to come to the forefront. Number one, truth is a big deal to the Apostle John. <laughs> and the reason it's a big deal to John as he writes this letter is because it's a big deal to God who's inspiring him as he writes. Truth is a big deal. It's not up for debate. It's not up to be to, to, to change with the times. It is to be walked in. It's to be proclaimed. It's to be stood upon, right? And then we also find that truth and love are inseparable. Look at verse 5. He says, now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now, that's interesting because what John does there is he equates and he links love with truth to such a degree to where he says, this is what love is. He defines it in verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. In other words, we can't separate the two. If love is disengaged from what is truth, it's not love. It has to be connected to truth. And in the same way, again, follow me on this, truth, if it's disconnected from love, right, loses its impact. They are designed to run together, truth and love. All of this sets the stage for what I think is the central part of John's letter, beginning in verse 7. Look at what he says. This is where he pulls out both guns, right? And it is a word of warning to this specific local church that we now have a scripture that is, that is specific to us as well and to those who are followers of Jesus. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Remember, think tourist trap, right? In it for themselves, not for you, calling you off the primary path to something less. Sometimes by deceit, sometimes by outright lying, sometimes by false teaching. For many deceivers have gone out into the world 
those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Let me pause for a moment, give some first century context. There was a teaching that was becoming prevalent in the first century known as Gnosticism. And, and in a nutshell, essentially, part of what Gnosticism propagated was uh, a false teaching that Jesus was not human. Right? Of course, we know from what Scripture teaches clearly that Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. Gnosticism countered that to say that he was not human. That's why when you think back to the Gospel of John, when John wrote his Gospel in the first place, John chapter 1, verse 1, this is really cool. What does he say? What's the opening of his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, right? Very clear representation that Jesus is God. And then he goes down to verse 14, John chapter 1, and the Word was made flesh, humanity, 100% was made flesh and dwelt among us. You can't help but understand that John was countering this false teaching of Gnosticism, both when he wrote the Gospel of John and now here when he writes Second John at the end of the first century. Right? So you look at verse 7. Again, many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Might, they might use a lot of the same terminology. They're going to sound just like that preacher that you listen to, right? They may have baggage that is labeled Christian, but when they unpack that baggage labeled Christian, it's going to look a lot different than your backpack labeled as Christian. Okay? He says at the end of verse 7, this is the deceiver, the antichrist. Verse 8, forceful language, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. He tells these believers, he tells this local church, watch yourselves, do not be pulled away from that path of devotion to Jesus, of surrender to Christ, of growth and maturity in Jesus, of walking in the truth. Don't let the bright lights, don't let the sounds, don't let the, you know, the, 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 the huckster on the sidelines saying, come on over, take a look. Don't let them call you off that path. I don't care who it is, if it's your mama, your daddy, your grandma, your grandpa, your close friend, your worker, somebody who's in your wedding, it doesn't matter who it is. If what they believe does not line up with truth, he would say, watch yourselves. Don't go down that road. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10, interesting verse, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. John is saying some really, really strong stuff here. He mentions many deceivers. He mentions watching yourself. In other words, knowing the truth, knowing the word. I've heard this illustration a thousand times. You probably have as well. Let's just call it a thousand and one now because it's a great, great illustration that reminds us of how we navigate false teaching, false doctrine. Uh, the illustration is simply that those who are trained to spot counterfeit bills, right, whether that's the Department of Treasury or special agents, whoever it is, right, that they are not trained to know and to recognize at a glance every single counterfeit that's out there. They are trained to know the one real authentic bill, and they know it so well that something that doesn't line up with it stands out like the midday sun. They know the real thing so well so that anything less than can be easily spotted and dealt with. John is saying much the same thing. Watch yourselves, know the truth, 
know the word so that it doesn't pass the test when you hear something that is less than God's truth. Verse 9, he says, abide in the teaching of Christ. Verse 10, he says, do not receive him into your house. So, so this is an interesting he says if there's someone who comes along that doesn't bring this teaching, that doesn't bring truth, they're bringing something other than the truth. It may sound flashy, it may sound good, but it doesn't line up with God's truth. He says, do not receive him into your house. Now, th- this, the reason this is interesting is because, one, we don't understand the context. We don't understand what life was like 2,000 years ago. But also, it sounds very counter to what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that we're supposed to be loving, right? So 2,000 years ago, the local church didn't have buildings like this. Those didn't exist for a few centuries. Typically, it was much like when we take a mission team to Cuba. They have a main church building, yes, but they also have what they call house churches, meaning little conglomerations of believers that are gathered in a literal person's house. That was church in the first century. They didn't come to First Baptist, First Methodist, First whatever community. They met in people's houses. That was the church. And so what was happening here, you can see this in John's letter, is that there was false teaching that was sounding like the real thing, but that was running counter to the truth. More than likely, again, this teaching that Jesus was not truly human, that was just merely an illusion, took away from the humanity of Jesus, which is heresy. These people, as you can tell by reading the context, were beginning to infiltrate the local church with this false teaching. That local church meeting in houses, And what John is saying, it's either to this literal chosen lady or to the church at large. He's saying, do not literally let this into your gathering. Don't let it into your assembly. Don't let it into your house. Don't give it a foothold. And he says why at the end of verse 11. He says, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. He's not being unloving. Right, a lot of folks will look at that and say, how how unloving. We're supposed to love everybody. He's not talking about love. He never said here, don't love these people. Jesus loved his enemies, right? The people who hated him enough to die for them. You and me included, by the way. Right? He's not saying anything about love. He's protecting the body of Christ. He's saying, don't let that false doctrine into your gathering. Watch yourselves and do what you need to do to keep it out. I think he would probably also say, shine Jesus' light and proclaim the truth, (laughs) right? But don't let it into your gathering. There's a principle there, principle number four in these that we're looking at. And the principle is this. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this. This is so important. Be mindful of who you allow to influence you spiritually. Be mindful of that. You cannot afford, I cannot afford to let Barnes & Noble and YouTube be the vetting process of what is spiritually accurate in our Christian walk. And if you let Barnes & Noble and if you let YouTube be the vetting process for what's accurate as it relates to Christian teaching, you are going to go down a long, hard road away from devotion to Jesus over time. Just because it's online doesn't make it valid. Just because it's in a bookstore under a spirituality or even a Christianity heading doesn't make it valid. We have to be very, very careful. We have to take ultimate responsibility for what we expose ourselves to. and We have to be careful of who we allow to influence us spiritually. It's amazing how many Christians will allow themselves to be uh, 
to be fed what doesn't line up with Scripture just because a speaker makes them laugh or because he or she is specific, uh, um, uh, particularly charismatic in nature or because they have a lot of followers or a big church. Right? It doesn't mean that they're teaching the truth in the truth. Now, now understand, I'm, I'm not saying all this as though I'm the only purveyor of truth. I'm not. And I don't do an especially great job of of communicating it week in and week out anyway. I just kind of do what God called me to do the best I can. There's a lot of others out there, men and women, who who help to pour into the lives of people, right, to teach the truth. But there are a lot who don't. And you may be surprised by who some of them are. We have to follow the example that we see in Acts chapter 17 of a group of people in a little town called Berea. They were the Bereans. Paul made his way to the city of Berea. Acts chapter 17 is where we read of this. Just after he had been in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, Paul had preached the gospel. He had shared the truth, and they did not want any part of it. And so a riot ensued, as was often the case. I'm sure there were times when Paul would say, here we go again. And a riot would come. Paul would be basically run out of town, and he would land in the next city, Berea. As he shares the gospel there with the believers in Berea, look at what it says in Acts 17, verse 10 and verse 11. It says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now those who were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so. And, and it, it's this scene that Paul comes and he brings the gospel and he brings the truth and he preaches and he teaches whatever subject he's preaching and teaching on. It's as though the Bereans say, Paul, thank you. It's been great to hear from you. We don't know a lot about you because remember they didn't have the, the New Testament in front of them. Uh, we don't know a lot about you. So if you don't mind and if you don't take it too personally, we're just going to take a moment now to step back and, and we're going to line everything you've set up up against the truth of the scriptures that we have up to this, to this moment. We're not just going to trust you because you're the one who said it. We're going to make sure it lines up with Scripture. It's one of the best words of advice any of us could ever have. Because, again, if we allow things online, if we allow just anyone to shape us spiritually, right, and influence us spiritually, we better be careful because not all of them are preaching the same Christianity that you were raised to believe and that we read of here in the pages of God's Word. The Bereans set for us an amazing example there's a final principle i want us to close with principle number five is this we should always hold teaching and even our own feelings for that matter up to the truth to the standard of truth that we see in god's word always whatever teachings we come across we hold it to the standard of god's word Sometimes that relates to some of the cultural mantras that we hear nowadays, right? Because the culture has a voice. And the culture doesn't know it, but the culture is making spiritual statements under the guise of statements of personal right or politics, right? They're making statements that have a, poli have a spiritual connotation, right? There are hot topics in our culture, as I mentioned earlier, that, um, that are spiritual in nature. And you've got to be very careful that you don't let the... the, 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 the um, very craftily worded jargon lead you astray. One of those, for example, would be as it relates to same-sex marriage. Let's just 
Let's just use that as, as a cultural example. You'll often hear whenever the context uh, or whenever the subject of gay marriage is being discussed, what you'll often hear from the culture in the affirmative of that is, well, love is love. Right? You ever heard that? Love is love. Sounds very biblical. Love is love. Kind of goes back to Second John. Like, well, who are we to tell people not to come into the house? That sounds very unloving. And so what happens in the culture is many Christians and even whole wholesale churches, wholesale denominations will go down a road that Scripture never intended, right? Because of that one specific issue in the culture, the issue of same-sex marriage or, or even homosexuality in general, right? And the mantra that gets cast over it is love is love. Who are we to tell a person who they can and cannot love? There have been a lot of followers of Jesus that have thought, you know, I never thought about that. Wow, that sounds so good. That sounds so right. I think, you know, who am I to say who can love someone else? Here's the problem with that. And again, here's how it's just sort of a tourist trap calling us from the from the path of truth, calling us to something less that sounds glitzy, that sounds, uh, you know, more correct, more of our own times than Bible times, is that when you think about love as love, that's not the whole issue as it relates to gay marriage. That's why those who hold to Scripture are opposed to gay marriage. It's not because of the issue of love. It's because of the issue of marriage, right? I'm going to make a shocking statement. I want, to, I want you to think about this for just a second. That there is nowhere in the Bible from the beginning to the end, nowhere in the Bible that we can find where God is against a loving relationship between members of the same sex. Nowhere in the Bible where we can find that God's against that. Now, some of you think, I can't believe you said that. And you know why you think that? It's because you, you've let the whole love is love thing kind of take you down a wrong path. Here, here's where I'm going with this. The Bible is all for loving relationships between a father and their son, between a son and his father. It's all for loving relationship between a mother and their daughter and a daughter and her mother. The Bible is all for loving relationships between us as men who are part of the body of Christ and between you as women who are part of the body of Christ. The Bible has no issue with being of the same gender, the same sex, and loving one another. In fact, that's propagated and encouraged throughout the Bible. Where the Bible runs counter to the culture, however, is that nowhere in the Bible from start to finish do we ever see it affirm or condone or show any favor towards. In fact, it treats it as sin, the whole idea of being in a same-sex, same-sex, same-gender sexual relationship, romantic relationship, or same-sex marriage. You don't see that affirmed anywhere in the Bible. Love is love. That's not the issue, right? That's the huckster on the sideline saying, Christian, come over and spend some time here. Let's think about this. Who are you to tell someone who they're not to love? <laughs> In that context, the whole reason that we have sex trafficking to begin with would be allowed by that definition, correct? It's not about love. It's about the truth of God's word. God's word has given boundaries as to what gender is, as to what marriage is, as to what sexuality is. It's put boundaries there, and it's just simply the truth. Right? And anything less, someone who wants something from you, not for you, is someone who's calling you off the path of truth to something less. Always hold teachings and even feelings, right, up to the standard of God's word. Sometimes the enemy will come. I'm sure you've experienced this. I know I have. 
and the enemy will whisper things in your ear, things to discourage you, things to distract you. He'll tell you things like, you know what, you're, 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 you're never going to be who God wants you to be. You know what, you're never going to move beyond your past. He'll tell you things, you're always going to be this way. Right? The enemy will whisper lies in your ear that run counter to the truth of God, that in Jesus you are a brand new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, the past is forgiven, the past is redeemed. Right? Let God's truth, not the enemy's lies, dictate truth for you. And then sometimes there's just flat out unbiblical teaching that we find in our culture. Prosperity gospel, gospels that say if you believe hard enough, then you're going to be healed. And if you're not healed, you don't believe hard enough, you don't have enough faith. Gospels that say if you believe hard enough and have enough faith, you're going to be wealthy. That's not the gospel of the scriptures. Jesus was homeless. It said the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He didn't come to this earth and die a brutal death and rise again proving himself to be God so that you and I could have more money than anybody else on this earth because we believe hard enough. He came to save us from our own uh, uh, destitute self, from our own spiritual bankruptcy to forgive us of our sin and to give us a home in heaven one day that we don't deserve, not a single one of us. And one day we are going to be healthy there. And one day we are going to be wealthy there, not in a way we think of here, not in the way our culture thinks of with a fat wallet and a bunch of money and savings. We are going to be wealthy there. And it's because of what he did through his death and his burial and his resurrection to accomplish. Always hold the teachings, even of those who claim to teach the Bible, up to the truth of God's word. And to be able to do that well over the long haul, it's a marathon, not a sprint. We have to spend time in it, and we have to learn it, and we have to live it, and we have to spend time together, right? to help keep us between the lines. I close with a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing a letter, not to a church in this instance, but to his protege in the faith, a young pastor by the name of Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we close with this. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul knew what it would cost Timothy for him to do that. He says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Verse 3, for the time will come, Timothy, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They will trade the path for the tourist trap. And I believe that the time that Paul spoke of 2,000 years ago has come, and it's probably only going to get worse. You say, church, you got to know the truth. It doesn't change with the times. It's timeless. It's unchanging. It's cross-cultural. It's communicated in his word. We discover it. We don't invent it. And he calls us to keep our eyes fixed on it, to keep our feet on the path of it, and to promote it with love and to walk it with integrity the best that we can. And when it's all said and done, right, hopefully we've been able to see God reach a few along the way through our lives, knowing in humility that we got a long way to go ourselves, right? But at the same time, knowing that one day the reward is coming, not because we did it so well, but because Jesus saved so well let's pray you know maybe for some of you as you hear this message and see some of these passages you think you know 
you know, I think I've kind of fallen for some of the tourist traps along the way. Maybe, maybe there's somebody I've been reading or listening to or following online that, you know, they sounded so good, but, you know, there's always been something about them that didn't quite ring true. It's just this little nag that maybe what they're saying is more to kind of draw a crowd than it is to preach the truth. And maybe for some of you, God's kind of put his finger there a little bit today, and you have a decision to make. Are you going to spend time in the tourist trap, or are you going to stay on the path of truth? You know, no one, tr- no, no one church, no one person can be the claim, can, can hold the claim to be the purveyor of truth. Only God's word communicates it. Only Jesus can claim to be the truth. But I will tell you this, that truth is never going to lead me astray. It may not always be easy to walk in it, but it's never going to lead you astray. And so, God, we thank you that you've given us your truth in your word. And, Lord, you've called us and you've, you've even promised to walk with us along the way to help us to walk in it. It's your truth that's a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. It's your truth that exposes sin in our lives so that we can put it away and confess it and walk with you. It's truth, God, that will never change. It's truth that will put the guardrails in place to protect us and to provide for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. But God, I pray that you'd give us a heart to continually walk in it and to communicate it. And we're needed to stand on it. We don't have to be mean. We don't have to be insensitive. We don't have to be unloving. But God, it does require boldness. And so give that to us, we pray. To stand on your truth in a way that honors you, that respects people, but that does not waver. Because anything less is only going to lead people further from you, not to you. And God, perhaps even if there's any today that have never yielded their life to Jesus, God, thank you that we don't have to clean ourselves up first, that we can come as we are, that if we're sick and tired of our sin, that all we do is confess that sin to you, Jesus, and we turn from it, and we invite you to forgive and to take over. God, for any that have never done that, may today be the day where they step on a new path, Lord, where they step on a path where they're yielded to you, Jesus, who died and rose to pay for their sin as they invite you to forgive and to save. Thank you for doing that. At every invitation, thank you for doing that. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we close today, um,